Today's episode of Socially Democratic is proudly brought to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specializes in community organizing and campaigning. We work with nonprofit, community based organizations, trade unions, progressive businesses, and social democratic parties across the globe. Dunn Street develops community engagement and organizing strategies to win campaigns both big and small. We train engagement staff, volunteers, and organizers in leadership and power building and help leaders craft their own public narrative that tells a story to unite people and move them to act together. And if you want to create change in 2023 in your community, then hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you passionate about extending access to justice? Morris Blackburn has an exciting opportunity for a union participation manager to join the firm on a 12-month contract based in the Melbourne Central Business District, uh, their office in CBD otherwise. Uh, This is a high-profile opportunity where you can bring passion and enthusiasm to a role that will see you drive and promote the Morris Blackburn ethos to help reach more clients in need find out more by going to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers so any of you field organizers out there that either organized on the 2022 state or federal and you're wandering around looking for a job this is the job for you because you have the skill sets that morris blackburn need and finally today's episode is brought to you by swift fox every moment on a campaign matters you need the tools that you can trust lists that are up to date phone banks that change minds emails that drive donations events that will energize the community both online and offline and text blasts that distill your message perfectly swiftfox crm is made for campaigners by campaigners and to find out more go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign hello and welcome to another episode of socially democratic your weekly center left politics and organizing podcast that drops every friday that dives into the progressive campaigns of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And we're having a chat to a good friend of ours from the Week on Wednesday podcast. Ben Davison is joining us to talk a bit about what's kind of a bit of a check-in really uh, with what's happening broadly in uh, politics in Australia. So we're going to take a look at the Aston by-election, which is coming up on the 1st of April. We're going to talk a bit about the Voice to Parliament referendum campaign. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the New South Wales state election which is coming up on the 25th of may uh and then sign off with a bit of a chat about daniel andrews reaching 3,000 days in office so lots to talk about with uh ben but before we do um don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on apple podcast spotify and stitcher uh, and if you like the show be sure to give us five stars on your apple podcast app uh, and when you're done listening to today's episode leave us a review uh, and for all the updates uh, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And let's get to today's episode. We are taping this one on a Thursday afternoon on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and joining me on the show actually for the first time, which sounds weird given that we've done a bunch of stuff together on respective podcasts and live telecasts and whatnot. So better late than never. Uh, Ben Davison from The Week on Wednesday, welcome to Socially Democratic. Thank you, Stephen. It's an honour to be here. And yeah, it is the first time I've been on Socially Democratic, I think, yeah. It just dawned so, on me. We've had your better half on the show before, but um, obviously you haven't haven't had you. Well, that, I mean that makes sense. You know, you're gonna get you're gonna get more people listening when you got Van on the show. So apologies for the drop in ratings. 
<laughs> but uh, no, it's uh, it's good to, good to be here. Good to talk with you. How is uh, how's the podcast going? Yeah, really good, really well. Uh, we're in Adelaide uh, at the moment. Actually, we did uh, the week on Wednesday live uh, from the Adelaide Fringe last night. Uh, we had a good turnout for that. The episode is up uh, online wherever you get your podcasts, and we're going to be doing three more shows: March first, eighth, and fifteenth. There is, uh, you know, scaled pricing, so there's a price point for every budget. And yeah, it's really great. We're in a yurt. It's air conditioned. The people are awesome. People get engaged. We hang around afterwards. Fan signs books. Uh, oh, you'll appreciate this. So afterwards, uh, a couple of uh, the regular listeners came up to Van and gave her a bog oak pen that they had made out of Irish bog uh, that they had retrieved on a journey to their ancestral homeland. Uh, because they knew that Van's mother had passed away and they thought it would be a nice connection to the ancestral land of the Badhams. So, you know, people are just so kind and awesome. So podcasts That's are going beautiful. great and the, uh, and the audience is even, even nicer than the event itself. I would be terrified doing a live podcast Uh that would, yeah, I mean, it's terrifying to do a podcast, period. But, uh, you know, you have the, the, the luxury of knowing that actually this is pre-recorded and if anything that goes wrong, you can fix, right? The beauty yeah. of podcasting. But a live show, like mentally, how do you prepare yourself for that? Well, there's a lot of anxiety and medication and that helps. Uh, but it's, it's, a, um, it's really interesting, right, because Van has this, theatrical background and is well-trained and has multiple degrees and taught theatre and, and theatre studies and all sorts of things. And, of course, my the peak of my theatrical life was uh, getting a highly commended uh, uh, recommendation at the Ballarat South Street Improvisation uh, uh, event because I uh, told a joke about a low-flying duck when I was pretending to be a pilot who'd crashed his plane. You know that, so it is. It is a different mental process for each of us. Van uh, gets really comfortable with it, and I try and uh, I probably over prepare. And uh, yeah, funny thing is, you know, I told people afterwards I was really nervous. <coughs> That's the dog Germanicus. He made the trip to Adelaide with us. Um, Welcome. <laughs> thank you. But no, it's um. It is. It's nerve-wracking, really nerve-wracking. But you, you find too that like people generally uh, are coming because they're interested in the podcast, they're interested in the topics, and they want to have a discussion about. They want to hear the discussion, and and sometimes they want to talk about it afterwards too. So that that's actually a, a really fun side benefit that um, I hadn't really thought about until we started doing a couple of live shows. Um, can I ask you? Um, I mean, we'll get to some of the contemporary topics of uh, politics in a moment but what what was what was i'm interested to get a sense from you about what was the motivating factor or, or the or the purpose that drove you and van to want to pull up the create the week on wednesday podcast um really we so it was started as a lockdown project there's there's sort of no question about that and it was really we identified that there was just a gap in the market for for um, progressive left wing content that that is unashamedly left wing. 
you know, like we are democratic socialists and and trade unionists and we don't apologise for that, we don't pretend otherwise and we constantly tell people on our podcast to join their union, like it's almost in every segment of our show uh, and we always take the workers' side. So, and when we were going through looking at the media that was out there and a lot of the podcasts, obviously this is an exception, Socially Democratic uh, is an exception to this, but a lot of the podcasts are very right wing. You know, Steve Bannon has a very successful podcast. A lot of the Fox um, identities have their own podcasts. And we went, you know, we think there might be an audience for our kind of um, discussion. And, and, you know, it's all very low tech and lo-fi and, and it's really just sitting around the table having a conversation. And it's given us an opportunity to really talk about issues and take the time out to talk about those issues and think about those issues. And the interaction from people has really shown us that there is a real audience, a real market that is, um, that is keen to have these conversations and get a language for talking about these issues that is not prevalent or available in the mainstream media. Uh, and that that's fundamentally the feedback we get regularly from people. And I mean, I imagine you get it too, right? Like these are people who listen to these podcasts. Um, they're interested in these topics. They want to understand more, but that's not readily available to them. The mainstream media talks in a language that's highly dominated by a kind of neoliberal um, ideological framework and people don't have a language to engage. Uh, and more than anything, that's probably what we've found our podcast has uh, given people is that th they no longer feel alone and they're no longer unsure about how to talk about why it's important to have secure work, why increasing wages is a good thing, why state-run services and delivery can be a real positive in, in life. And and a bit like what Elbo said at the press club yesterday, that the sense of security is more than just submarines and um, anti-missile technology. It's actually how you feel about your place in the world and in the community and the, the, that you know tomorrow you're going to go to work, you're going to get paid properly, you're going to be treated decently, your kids are going to get a good education. And if something goes wrong, you're not going to go bankrupt, you know, because you break your leg at work. You know, those are somewhat basic principles, but have been eroded over a long period of time. So we just, we, we keep it really basic. We keep coming back to those basic principles. It's um, one of the things I do love about your show um, is that it is uh, creating a space for people to listen to a conversation that, as you said, is you know overtly left wing, uh, and for people to reflect on the conversation, and then for them, to, for them, for the for the audience to take that into their own networks and say, well, yeah. actually, no, I you know I heard Van and uh, Ben during the week talking about this particular issue, and that made me think about that, and now I want to have a conversation with you in this workplace or in this environment, this community, and how we need to think on that, and what we can do about it, and what changes we can bring about it. Whereas the mainstream media have always framed up these topics in a way that they want to do it. And we don't, we, you know, we might watch the news or, or watch insiders or watch a TV program and go, oh, that's bullshit. I don't agree with that at all. 
uh, yeah. you know, and, and not having much, but you can't do much about it, right? You just get angry and yell at it. Whereas listening to your show, there's a sort of, uh, uh, that's interesting, um, you know, and th- that's made me reframe the way I'm thinking about it. And now I can go do something about it. And then the connection as well between say your podcast and my podcast, uh, yeah. there's an ex, sorry, not an ex, a former, uh, uh, student of, uh, Man, what do we use my words? Someone I went to school with is what I'm trying to say, who I have not spoken to for 20 years, uh, reached out via one of the social media uh, platforms and said, I found out about Social Democratic through uh, Ben and Van's podcast. Um, And I'm doing, you know, I'm I'm an educator now and I'm doing great work. I'm a delegate in my union and, uh, you know, I'm really, really – locked in on this kind of stuff and it, this is really really important to me and i just enjoy your show and i enjoy ben and van show and you know it's given me focus about the work i want to do in my own community particularly in, around unionism and, and empowering workers um and i just want to say hi you know and i was like oh yeah. man well, well, this is great like you know i'm so happy for you i'm so pleased to see what you're doing this kind of stuff um just that connection right i just was like oh that's brilliant um and growing up in a, like you grew up in ballarat and I wonder yeah. what those experiences were like for you. I grew up in Warrigal, which is an incredibly conservative town. Uh, and I just assumed when I was a kid, everyone in my school, even though I loved my time at the Morris Brothers, everyone in my school, I just thought they were all Tories, you know? And yeah. then to find that, and we just didn't talk about politics. Well, I didn't talk about politics that much at school uh, just because I had the assumption that they were all Tories. But here I am discovering years later that there were Labor people, people from Labor families that were at my school um, and they're yeah. going on to do great things. I think it's one of the great things about your podcast and, and, and what we do as well, right, is that it it actually gives people a greater sense of security about their own belief sets because it gives them a language. It gives them a place where they can hear other people talk about these things in a way that is rational and sensible and is not hyperbolic. It's It actually is, uh, it is analytical. And, you know, we had somebody contact us uh, not so long ago because uh, we had talked about uh, some industrial action that was on, that was underway, uh, and the delegate actually contacted us saying that they had sat around on the picket line and listened to the episode, and then they had talked about not just their own picket line, but some of the other issues we talked about in the podcast as well, and and that sort of you know that sort of thing is just so uh, I think. Uh, amazing because like yourself like I grew up in Ballarat in a time that was really conservative you know people think about Ballarat now and they think it's a labor town and it is a labor town now but you know when I was a kid we had a liberal federal MP we had liberal state MPs we had liberal mayors you know growing up with two mums we we were targeted for discrimination like it was a really conservative place Um, and it's changed a lot and it's a bit like yourself. I've had friends reach out going, oh, I've listened to your podcast and, you know, now I'm a contributor and, you know, we're having these conversations about uh, about politics in our house and at work that we just didn't have before because it wasn't encouraged. Like if you were, if you were coming at things from the left in any way, shape or form, centre-left through to far-left, it was not encouraged for you to have those conversations outside of very narrowly defined kind of academic um, institutions. And, you know, for a lot of working class people, the, the idea of getting to uni was so that you could start to have the conversation. 
well, I think we're kind of democratizing the language of politics by doing these sorts of things. And, you know, I just, we've done the, the live broadcasts of election night. And, you know, when we, uh, when we beat uh, uh, Sky News on some of the coverage, you know, that tells you that there is this huge group of people who want uh, a different way of talking about politics and engaging with it. Because we do engage with it, you know. Like, obviously, we get trials or whatever and block them. But if people engage in good faith, we engage back. Like, that's mm. that's the democratic part of it. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the bigger takeaways I think we had from the the two live broadcasts we did last year for the federal election and the Victorian state election was that there is such an appetite for wanting just left-wing media. You know, we don't have that yeah. in this country. Um, you've got that in the States, got MSNBC and all that kind of stuff. We don't have that here in Australia. And, I, and we're not MSNBC, obviously. And, you know. No. There's a kind of, a, you know, there's, there's, a, there's any a self-reflection. Like kind of, <laughs> hey? If there's any investors who'd like to uh, make that kind of uh, investment, we're, we're, we'll find a way to put it to good use. <laughs> oh, indeed. Absolutely. Like, I mean, there is a self-referential kind of, you know, Australian piss take, pistaki, as I call it, uh, of what we're doing. Uh, but at the same time, we are. There's a level of seriousness of trying to communicate to an audience about, hey, um, this is where you can get some good quality left-wing content, be it audio or visual or podcast or, 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 um, or all the things in between. Can we talk I, about... I, I, um, yeah. Sorry, go, Ben. I was just going to say, too, like one of the things that, um, you know, trying to do is build that network. And I think, you know, there are, there are good um, outlets around the place and, and, you know, I think trade unions and I think the Labor Party and I think... Um, progressive organisations do need to get on board with platforming, you know, Social Democratic, the week on Wednesday, and, and there's, I know some some unions are now doing their own little podcasts, and they are small, but they're targeted for groups of members, and good on them, you know, we, mm. we're, all, this is not a, a, you know, you've got me on your show, we've had you on ours, uh, there's actually, when you talk about 30 to 40% of the population, there is enough market to go around. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think that's important for us to, I mean, that's why I wanted to get you on the show and get Van on the show is to support the work that you guys are doing and vice versa um, because you're right, there are millions of our people out there and I think it's just trying to get us to connect with them is the, one, of, one of the many challenges of what we do, but it's one of the most important <laughs> ones, right? My theory change in my brain is there's, you know, 100,000 Labor Party members. Um, if I can get, if 20% of them know about social democratic, I'd be happy with that. You know? Yeah. Um, David Feeney always makes a joke, you know, how many people listen to the show six or seven. And I want to point out to David, it's more than that. It's at least 10 or 12, but uh, you know, our challenge is to get more people to, to listen to, um, to the show. And then um, from that moment, then use it an opportunity. Like for example, in a moment where I'm going to plug people that they need to volunteer for the Aston campaign. Uh, yeah. This is an opportunity for people to, hear some things and go, right, okay, here's how I make a difference because this is an organising podcast and in organising it always requires an ask, a specific ask at some point. I don't do it too often, uh, but there will be one today anyway. Um, let's, that's a good segue for Aston. Aston by-election, which is going to be uh, on the 1st of April, April's, April Fool's Day. Um, and uh, obviously the seat of Aston is in the outer suburbs of eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Uh, the campaign kicked off formally, I guess, this week with Prime Minister Anthony Albanese coming down to the electorate uh, to do a press conference with Labor's candidate Mary Doyle. The Libs selected their candidate, uh, Rashina Campbell, during the week. 
before we sort of go into the ins and outs of the campaign itself, uh, obviously this by-election was brought on by the resignation of Alan Tudge. Keen to get your reflections on the uh, inquiry into robo-debt uh, and Tudge's role in it, first of all. Oh, look, Alan Tudge uh, was a despicable, despicable minister of the Crown and his departure from Parliament, uh, you know, I always ask the question, why now, why not 10 years ago? Um, because, frankly, he damaged the lives of tens of thousands of Australians and uh, is fairly unrepentant about that. I don't know, you know if people have seen uh, any of his performance at the Robodet Royal Commission, uh, it was very much uh, a lack of contrition, a lack of responsibility, uh, blaming everyone but himself. At one point, I think he tried to throw Christian Porter under the bus. I mean, this gives you the the insight into the culture of of the of the current modern day Liberal Party. It is a every man, and I use that term, that gendered term specifically, every man for himself operation. Mm. And Alan Tudge is the epitome of that. You know, I mean, he this is a man who, when he was Education Minister was trying to lecture the hardworking teachers around this country about what morals and values they should be teaching students uh, after it had been publicly exposed that he was having an affair with a member of his staff. Uh, you know, this is... They are just, he was not a, not a, good, uh, not a good minister, not a person who I would want... Uh, involved in any way shape or form so i'm glad he's gone uh i think it's interesting that he held on uh he got himself re-elected obviously it's always harder for an incumbent government to win a by-election and i think he probably saw the polls uh that we were seeing that suggested labor did have a good chance of winning government and then you know being a good party man in that sense he held on got himself just over the line 10 percent swing against him uh, and has now positioned it so that there's a by-election rather than uh, a vacancy, which I think the Liberals would have really struggled to hold on in the general election given the swing they had against them. So, yeah, glad he's gone. And, look, Mary Doyle, great candidate, 10% swing in the general election, candidate again for the by-election. Uh, I mean, you'd know better than I would, Stephen, what the, what the state patterns uh, uh, showing us around that area, but I, I would think that this is not one of those by-elections where Labor's going to be uh, running soft or running dead. I think we'd be running pretty hard. Yeah, I think uh, I, look, I don't. Know. Someone texted me during the week said, "Stephen, what do you think your chances are in Aston?" And I actually haven't texted that person back, um, but I know they listen to the show, so here's the, the answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want wonder if there are elements of the party elite, I include myself in that, that think we're not going to win Aston. Uh, and I would say to them, and, you know, normally I can be a little bit uh, cautious in my thoughts leading into an election campaign, and I've got form in that one when it came to the Victorian state election, but for good reason. Can I just um, say on that, Stephen... That you, you during the election night broadcast, uh, y- your your sense of gloom and doom at the beginning of the broadcast was quickly dispelled 
by the by the bright sunny rays of victory and it was lovely to see the change in your demeanor <laughs> it was good it was good you, you it's good to be cautious i get being cautious but uh yeah you know we, 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 don't, we don't have to be negative <laughs> no not at all well i'm going to surprise folks here because uh this is on like yep. this is a this is a genuine this is a genuine fight that we can win uh, and I know that a- Aston is a seat that we haven't won since 18 diggity whatever. Um, and historically we've had cracks at it. We've had it. This is not the first by-election we've had in Aston. You know, we had an, a by-election in Aston in the 2000s or late 1990s. I can't remember. Um, I should have actually did my research on this one. But I remember standing on the booth handing out for uh, whoever the candidate was at the time um, and and, you know, at the time, we thought, "Oh, this is a long shot." I don't think this is a long shot in this instance. Um, you're right; huge swing to Labor's candidate Mary Doyle at the general. Um, the state, if the if the if we return the same result in on April first as we did at the Victorian state election, we win the seat by around about you know between five hundred thousand votes. Um, Right now, Labor is riding high in the polls. You know, the honeymoon for Elbow and the Labor government continues, despite that article in the City Morning Herald during the week, um, it continues to go. Daniel is very popular. The Liberal brand is in the toilet. You know, Dutton is either unknown in Victoria or despised in Victoria. Um, The Liberal Party itself are in turmoil, both nationally and at a state level. Like they are, they spend half of their... Um, state caucus uh, during the week because Victorian sitting week this week just fighting amongst each other you know they're they're trying to kill each other um, we currently have seen a huge swing to labor um, in all of these seats out in the eastern suburbs that historically have been liberal territory uh, at you know the 2018 Victorian state election the 2022 uh, federal election and then again the 2022 November state election it's not a fluke there is a shift of sentiment towards Labor in these communities. Broadly speaking, if we want to do demographic bingo, which I hate doing, but professional women, people from migrant communities, particularly from, you know, Chinese Australian backgrounds are voting for the Labor Party. And, you know, if there was ever a chance to win Aston, it's now. Like this is this is what I call an opportunity. And yeah. I, I would say to folks out there, get involved in this campaign because we can win this one. Yeah, look, I, I totally agree with you, and you can see, uh, you can see how that plays out really, really strongly when you think about Peter Dutton and you think about the the Liberal brand, and then you compare that with Albo and Mary Doyle, and you know who they are and what they represent, and they represent that area really well. You know, Peter Dutton, Queensland Copper is not actually uh, going to go well with uh, working women in the seat of Aston. Uh, it's not really going to go well uh, with the new home buyers in that area. Like, there's a whole range of groups, and you know, we've we've talked before about um, elections are won by piecing together thin slices of uh, of democratically uh, selected uh, groups. And I just can't see how uh, the Liberals will do that. They're in total chaos. The, the hyenas are fighting 
for the spoils of defeat, and that's mm. what they do. Meanwhile, you've got Elbow out there laying out a redefinition of security to to talk to the heartland of Australia, which you know you would say Aston is the is the typical Menzian Hawkian uh, seat, right? Like it is a group of people who want a government that allows them to have aspirations but won't let them fall too far. Well, here's Elbow saying we're going to invest in manufacturing, we're going to invest in early childcare, we're going to make sure that we have jobs here locally, we're going to address inflation by doing sensible things like bringing down the cost of prescriptions. Like these are things that people in those kind of seats will look at and go, that seems about right. And what's the alternative? Peter Dutton, who quite frankly at this point hasn't laid out any alternative except that he doesn't like what Labor's doing. Now, there'll be some people that appeals to, I'm sure there always is, but is it going to be enough to cobble together uh, an, an electoral coalition of votes to win the seat? Time will tell, but I'm with you. I think this is really winnable. And, and certainly, like, I, I've known Mary Doyle. Uh, I'm not sure if the listeners will know this. I've known Mary Doyle for, for a, a decade or so. We worked together uh, at the ACTU. A more genuine, community-minded person I'm not sure I've ever met. Um, Mary was not someone who, you know, was involved in things because she wanted to be a member of parliament. Uh, Mary... One of my first memories of Mary was that, uh, you know, we were at a, at a conference together. Um, it was a superannuation conference of all things. Uh, and Mary gets up and starts singing karaoke um, just to try and get people involved, you know, and, and get a bit of life into the, into the room. And, and that's the kind of person Mary is. She's, she's a genuine person who will knock on the doors and make the calls and, you know, tell her story about raising kids and she's raised wonderful kids and she's done that. You know, she's come up the hard way. There's no question about that, but she absolutely is a great candidate. So, I mean, I, I don't know much about the Liberal candidate. Um, strikes me as, uh, from what I do know, strikes me as sort of your your typical uh, Liberal candidate, normally probably someone more for a safe seat than who's going to wear out the shoe leather uh, making it happen, I think they're in for the fight of their life with uh, with Mary Doyle. Absolutely. It was interesting. Uh, someone uh, I was talking to last night was going, "I don't know why we, why we as in the government, uh, why Labor did uh, call the by election date it to be that early when they could have actually extended it out longer, which would have forced." the Liberals to have to have a rank-and-file pre-selection and that's exactly what you want to do because it would expose the weaknesses within their actual party organisation right now, the fact that they are in their... They're just trying to avoid fights right now. You know, it's like the Liberal Party right now literally is the commercial hotel in Warrigal at about uh, two minutes before closing time. Like you're just looking in the 90s, right? You are just looking around and you know a punch-up is going to start at any moment but it can happen anywhere it literally can happen anywhere it could be at the bar it could be near the pool table it could be near the men's toilets could be in the men's toilets like a fight yeah. is going to break out and they could all break out simultaneously or maybe they could all start at one point of time you know in succession and it all begins to this massive pile in right that's the liberal party right now 
They are drunk. They are angry. They are pissed off with each other. They're, some of them don't know why they're pissed off with each other, but they're just pissed <laughs> off with each other and they want a blue. And that by having the, uh, the, 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 the election so early, it gave them the excuse to go, oh, we don't have time to have the vote. So let's just do it all in-house. But, you know, there's, maybe there's something to that too, though, right? Because they are, they are drunk and angry and the hyenas are still, you know, tearing off the, what's left of, of the bones of their defeats, um, both in Victoria and federally. Uh, and, and Dutton has no vision. Like Dutton's vision of Australia is sort of like a Frankenstein's version of Howard's vision of Australia, which is not the same country anymore, right? And, and those, those fights are happening right now. So, I mean, yeah, look, I think the, the party installing a candidate is also going to piss off the local members, right? And, and in a seat like Aston, uh, where you've just had an MP who had to basically run dead himself, like he, he had people on the ground doing stuff for him, but they had to do a lot of heavy lifting. And now six months later, he's like, yeah, thanks for all the fish, I'm off. Um, and they're going to be called upon again to do that work uh, for a candidate they've had no say in. I mean, frankly, if I was in the Liberal Party in Aston, I'd be going, well, what, what's the point? What am I turning up for? You know, I'm, I'm going to help this person who I don't know, I've had no say in, get into Parliament and do what? Sit there in opposition? Well, you know, Labor, if Labor wants one more seat to their majority, so, you know, I think, I think the stakes for the Liberal um, Party members uh, are actually... Uh, in a way, it's a bit like it's a bit like them saying, "Well, we expect you to turn up and do this work for someone who we've imposed upon you, and even if they get elected, fundamentally, they're not going to be able to implement the policies of the Liberal Party anyway." That's not a very motivational. Uh, it's not a very motivational pitch. Whereas, you know, you elect Mary Doyle, that gives Labor you know, more than a one-seat majority. So in the event that something bad did happen to one of our other MPs, um, you know, touch wood, it doesn't, but we would still be able to continue to implement the, the agenda that we've been laying out. That's a much more motivational pitch to be able to say, let's keep government, let's secure government, then, oh, yeah, let's all vote for someone we've never heard of because someone in the state office of the Liberal Party who, by the way, isn't talking to anybody else, has imposed on us. That'd be my view. Let's take a quick break to talk about SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust. Lists that are up to date, absolutely. Phone banks uh, that can change minds. Emails that drive donations and events that will energize the community online and offline and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. And to find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign. Okay, let's get back to the show. Let, um, uh, and I, I completely agree. Uh, and 
we're in a moment here where we've kind of got our foot on the necks of the Liberal Party and the last thing we want to do is take our foot off it and I think we just want to just push it down a little bit harder and just squeeze it a little bit tighter and the best way to do that really is to get involved in the local campaign and here's how you can do it. You need to go to thisislabor.org forward slash volunteer. Uh, you'll see at the top of this, the um, the webpage there'll be a link to the Aston campaign. Just click on that. There's two things you can do. You can donate money uh, and if uh, you've got you've got legs at work, work. Uh, or if you've got uh, a voice and a hand that work, there's phone banks and door knocks in which you can get involved in. So sign up there and one of the field organisers will give you a call and get involved in that campaign, give you some training uh, and make a difference and get Mary Doyle uh, elected on the 1st of April. And I'll put those links up in the uh, bio for today's episode as well. Can we talk about the voice? Um, yes. It's a, we had uh, Annie Jill uh, Gallagher on the podcast uh, earlier in the year. Really enjoyed the conversation with her. I thought that um, she made more sense than anyone else uh, who's been certainly from the political side talking about it. And I think that that's something I want to talk about. Uh, I want to talk about the things that you're worried about in terms of this campaign, but also want to talk about the things that give you hope. Uh, can we start with the things that are challenging about this campaign at this moment in time? I know it's got a long way to go, but I just want to get your thoughts on, on where we're at in terms of things that might be just worrying you a little bit. I think the thing that, I think the thing that worries me a little bit about it is that within the political class, um, there there hasn't been a good understanding of the difference between the rhetoric and the reality. So the rhetoric of this is this is an opportunity to bring our country together to recognise the oldest continuous civilization on earth as part of our commonwealth. Uh, and to ensure that they're consulted on issues that re- that are going to impact them, and that will help our nation go forward in a unified way. Like that's good rhetoric, and it's and it's the and that's where we will get to once it's passed. The reality between now and that point is that a referendum is it is intrinsically divisive. It divides people into a yes camp and a no camp. It is a binary option. And what worries me a little bit is that our desire to get to that point post a yes vote, post a successful outcome, means that people get very concerned that we've got to get everyone to agree, that we're that we're going to end up chasing our tails trying to get every single Australian to vote yes. Now, that would be ideal, right? Like in an ideal world, every Australian would understand that this is something that they can vote yes to and do the right thing and a good thing and have a better country and literally have no personal negative impacts at all. But the other reality is that's not going to happen. Like we discussed on our podcast yesterday, there are people who recognise that the no vote is actually a target market for certain sales demographics, right? So so there's people in the Murdoch organisation for whom the no campaign is actually a really great opportunity to do advertising, push subscriptions and target marketing and harvest data. Like there's vested interests at play here. So... I do worry a little bit that we end up uh, trying to be all things to all people and chasing down votes in places where we don't necessarily need them. We need a majority of votes in a majority of states 
to win the referendum. Once we win the referendum, that's when we come together. And I and I go back to the marriage equality campaign, and I and I just refer back to that because in that campaign, yes, the rhetoric was bringing people together. Yes, it was taking the nation forward in a unified way, but we didn't get distracted or run down blind alleys chasing people who fundamentally were not going to vote yes. We understood the, the aim was to win the campaign. You win the campaign and then you implement the change. You don't kind of try and convince people that you're implementing the change during the campaign because that's how you lose both. The uh, you make a number of important points, and I, I want to just sort of pick up on a couple of them. And, and the thing that I ref, have reflected on over the course of you know the last two or three months is that referendums are not easily won things. And I, you know, we don't we haven't had one here in Australia since 1999, uh, which was the uh, the referendum on the republic. Um. And it's a difficult, it's a difficult campaign to, to win, and a lot of campaigns have. And I'm going more broader here in terms of referendums that have happened around the world, uh, with similar type of um, electoral um, processes. Y- you can see campaigns that at the beginning, when when the when the referendum was first initiated, that uh, the 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 positive campaign or or the the campaign for change. Uh, or amendment to uh, to, a, to a constitution or whatever had had overwhelming um, uh, support, and then what we noticed was, as the campaign goes on, the 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 the, the campaign the no vote or the or the campaign against the change slowly claws back the support, and then when it comes to election day or voting day, it you know they win. It doesn't get up. Um, examples of that uh, like the. This, the Scottish independence referendum. You know, initially it was, you know, uh, and that was a simple majority vote. That wasn't even, you know, the, the construction that we have here in Australia. Uh, you know, it was, it was a, people were overwhelmingly in support of uh, independence for Scotland. And in the end, it didn't get up. Uh, New Zealand had a cannabis referendum uh, at their last national elections. And overwhelmingly at the start, everyone was like, yeah, this, all, this is a good thing. Um, and complacency crept in. No one ran a proper coordinated uh, yes vote, and it didn't get up. Um, and so there's a, there's enough there to sort of suggest to us, and even Brexit, you can probably, I mean, there's a complexity to Brexit as well, but there's been examples where overwhelmingly people thought, yeah, this is a good idea. I like this idea. Um, but then slowly but surely this negativity, this, this, this no camp creeps in, creates confusion and hesitancy and fear and complexity. Uh, and then all of a sudden people start to, you know, start to think about it a lot more. And going to the point that you're making, the, camp, the campaigns that are successful uh, that seek change make a values-based proposition to the electorate. The marriage equality campaign was a values-based proposition. It was, do you just broadly believe in equality? And I think most Australians go, yeah, I do. That's a core value that I subscribe to, and so therefore I will vote yes. And it's the same here in this campaign. Do you broadly believe in racial equality? You know, yeah, 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 I do. You know, and if I don't, I'm a shit bloke. 
And so the vote really comes down to, do you want to be a good bloke or do you want to be a shit bloke? Well, I don't want to be a shit bloke. Well, then you should vote yes. And that's it. And let's not talk about this process crap that the Tories are throwing up right now. And we'll get to that in a moment. I, I want to get your thoughts on how do we overcome that? How do we get the debate out of that and back to a simple question of shit bloke, good bloke, you know? Um, what, what what are your thoughts on that? And by, by asking you that, where do you see the hope in this campaign? Where is the hope in this campaign? Yeah, look, I think I think the hope in this campaign is that increasingly people are who are involved with the campaigns that are that are out there are starting to go back and look at what worked and what didn't, either in referendums or plebiscites, and and understand that that is actually the framework, right? That if you can't convince people that this is a values decision and it aligns with their values, you're not going to convince them by giving them more detail. That's, you know, and increasingly people are starting to tell the stories. So, you know, again, just reflecting on my involvement in the Yes campaign, you know, my my mum, I have, I have multiple mums, right? So, um, and my mum had never been politically active before and I was asked to come and participate in something and I said to mum, hey, do you want to come and do this? You, know, you don't have to participate if you don't want to, but you can just come and watch. We're going to paint a mural, right? And fundamentally, mum got actively involved because she saw an opportunity to tell her story about what it meant for her. And the hope that I see now in the Yes campaign for The Voice is that we're starting to see some of those stories come through those stories about what has changed over the course of Australian recent history and what this next step will mean for people. You know, because when you're saying to people, we want you to make a values choice, if you don't give them somebody for whom it makes a difference, then the argument that change could be scary or change could do this or change might have an impact on you becomes really easy to believe, right? Like if the, if, the, if the marriage equality plebiscite had been all about the technical implications for the Marriage Act rather than what it meant for my mums and their acceptance in their community, then when mum was door knocking uh, and somebody goes, oh, I'm a staunch Catholic, the next line wouldn't have been, Oh, and me and everyone in my church is voting yes because we know it's going to help people like you, it would have been, well, the Marriage Act does define marriages between a man and a woman. Now, that's fine and that can be someone's position, but if you want to have a values-based conversation, you've got to have stories that reflect those values and what the next step means when those values take place, you know, as I say, my mum is not a politically active person, uh, but her tears about her experiences raising a son in the 80s in an environment where being a lesbian was really difficult and dangerous um, did inspire people. And people reached out, you know, and people said, actually, this has changed how I think about this. There are real people's lives that this will impact and frankly whether it's yes or no makes no immediate impact on my life personally 
but now I'm thinking about friends of my kid or my aunt or these people who it will help. And that's the hope, right? That's got to be the hope of the campaign, that this next step will help people who who have been on a journey already. Like, you know, Linda Burney and Patrick, Patrick Dodson were not recognised as human beings when they were born in this country. Like, and, and now, you know, one of them is a minister and one of them is the, the father of reconciliation and it's such a, such a change just in their lifetime. Well, this is the next step, you know, and, and absolutely we should support, absolutely should support them being able to achieve that because the, the alternative is to, be, is, is to be a shit bloke and go, actually, you know what, nah, no, I don't think I don't think uh, racial equality is a good thing. You know, you know, I'm not not for it. Not for it. Like, you know, I don't like Jacinta Price's politics, but I fundamentally believe in in her right to to be a human being and to be treated equally, and and that we should respect the fact that she comes from the world's oldest continuous civilization, and within that there are different needs and and a different requirement given the history of our country. We can't just wash away that this Commonwealth that we so enjoy was founded on a series of false premises, like not ascribing uh, motivations one way or another to the people who did the things that they did, but we have to acknowledge that those things happened and that part of that acknowledgement is to say the First Nations people need to be recognised in the birth certificate of this country or this country will be forever without all of the elements recognised that actually make it a commonwealth for all. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moment in our history in which we want to be able to look back and not have regret on the decisions that Absolutely. we make in this referendum. Look, you've just you've summed up in one sentence what I just waffled about for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, look, I loved it. Uh, I just, and as, as I'm listening to you, I'm just going, you know, like, I mean, public narrative as a, as a leadership practice, as an organising tool, or more than a tool to practice, is so, is so important in this campaign. You know, the story of self, whether it be your uh, Aboriginal Australian or non-Aboriginal Australian, the story of us that unites all of us um, in moments of the past and, and that shows us what we can do in the future and then the story of now. What is the value proposition that we need to, that we need to embrace, the moral resources that we have and how do we organise them with intentionality to create change and therefore what is the ask I'm putting on you right now? And the ask ultimately is I need you to vote yes, but the ask immediately is I need you to get involved in this campaign. Um, and that's so important in this campaign because it just overcomes its, you know, I mean, the instructional, they talk about action inhibitors and action motivators when we, when we train folks on public narrative. Um, you know, you are more likely to move someone with a, with the, with through narrative or story or teaching than you are through statistics. And right now what we're losing in this, if we are losing this campaign, I'm not suggesting we are losing this campaign, but the, what we're seeing from the conservatives is they're trying to fuck us up with stats and the way you overcome that is with narrative with stories. I think 70% of instruction from parents is through narrative to their kids. Um, and that's what we need to lean into. It's our, one of our greatest resources, one of our greatest strengths in this campaign. Do we have time? Let's talk about New South Wales. Uh, they got an election on the 25th of 
March. It's not far away. It's around about 30 days. I was up in Sydney uh, earlier in the week doing training with unions in New South Wales and their essentials, uh, essential workers is a better campaign. Um, we want to get your thoughts about that uh, race up in uh, New South Wales. Uh, Labor is, it seems reasonably, it's close in the polls. Uh, it's a different conundrum in New South Wales in terms of the way you vote because it's optional proportional representation. That is, you don't have to complete your entire ballot paper. So votes can be exhausted. Um, so that's just, it just creates a sort of a complexity in terms of trying to see Labor get up. Uh, the other thing to throw in there is that there's a number of seats that you think will fall to Labor on election night, but then sort of to get to the 11 that they need or the nine that they need, I think it is, uh, the margins from six to 12 are big fat margins that the Tories hold right now. Not insurmountable, but, you know, something else just to factor in. How are you feeling about the New South Wales um, campaign? And talk to you've had some involvement as well with the with the uh, essential uh, workers campaign. Just want to get your sense about the uh, New South Wales election. Sure. Look, we, we spoke to Chris Minns just before Christmas on the um, on the week on Wednesday. Uh, you know, Chris uh, joins yourself, Stephen, as one of the very few people we've, uh, you know, had on as an interview guest. Uh, and there's no question it's going to be a tight uh, election race. Uh, the, Liberals, uh, the Liberals up there are just as much of a mess as they are in Victoria, quite frankly. And, you know, I think it's starting to all come out about Dominic Perrottet's brother and this, that and the other thing. But fundamentally too, you know, my I was really glad to see the focus of uh, Unions New South Wales, uh, the Teachers Federation, uh, the uh, Nurses and Midwives, the Health Services Union and, and others as well, really being on the, the core bread and butter issues that uh, Labor values issues, cost of living, service delivery. Uh, there was a point, start of the year, where there was, you know, a lot of talk about, uh, was it starting maybe in the last year, about um, poking machine reform and gambling reform. And not that not that gambling reform is not an important issue. Um, I, I accept that it is. But when you then look at people's rankings of what's most important, uh, what they are going to decide their vote on, um, pokey reform is down the bottom for the, for the vast majority of people. When we're talking about Western Sydney, when we're talking about um, regional seats uh, and, and regional centres that Labor needs to win votes in, it's not going to change the government, right? So I was a little bit concerned that people were going to get a bit distracted by that. These are issues that Labor governments can deal with when they're in government, but fundamentally, I think Tasmania showed us an election or two ago that mm. if you make that the core of your election, you're just not talking about what people care about. So the the fact that sixty percent of essential workers in New South Wales are thinking about quitting, that is an issue. That's going to impact people, not just the people who quit their job, but that that means if I do get sick. Am I going to be able to see a nurse? Am I going to be able to see a doctor? Is the emergency room even going to be open? Um, is the ambulance going to be able to come and get me? Are the teachers, is my kid going to get the same teacher for the whole year or for the whole term? I mean, these are issues that people really do care about. Um, and the cost of living stuff around tolls uh, is, is obviously a big one too in New South Wales, even more so than in any other state. I think that's fundamentally um, 
a vote winner for Labor when they, uh, they're doing things about that. So, yeah, look, I think there's a really good chance. Uh, it's going to be very tight. Those big margins, I think we have seen in the last few state elections around the country some big, big swings in some places. Whether New South Wales follows that trend, that's going to be, um, that's going to be the question. Uh, but, yeah, Dominic Perrottet, I mean, the accidental boy prince of New South Wales is just out of his depth, right? Like he just is running around. He's talking about Western Sydney like it's a foreign country even when he's standing in it. You know, he his response to the floods in, in the northern parts of the state was just ham-fisted at best. Uh, and and now, you know, his brother's on the run or something. I mean, for God's sake, get it together, man. I did see that news report. That was hysterical. Uh, Channel 9 ran it. Um, it's worth actually going onto to Twitter and finding the uh, the clip, the package. Uh, I think it was John Graham, the Labor opposition, did, got a couple of great grabs, which was like we're putting an APB out or whatever the police say, a missing persons yeah. report on where Dominic Perrottet's brother is. Can you please want to talk to you? They've got questions for you. Um, it was gold. It was absolute comedy and I loved it. I can't believe they got that up. Um, but you know, it, it, this is the thing. Then Dominic Perrottet refuses to answer questions about it and says, I'm, I'm not going to talk about my family. Well, th- that's fine, Tom. No one's asking you about your wife and your very many children. We're asking you about the fact that your brother is wanted by the police. That and and you you have a police you have the police minister and the capacity to hire and fire the police minister. In most people's minds, that's worth some commentary, mate. Like step up to the plate and lead or step away like he's obviously not going to do that but it's uh yeah i mean the whole uh the whole liberal machine up there is a mess too you know so labor has to be disciplined they he comes back to that thing we've talked about right like they've got to have the right narrative they've got to continue to pursue it and not get distracted as as much fun as you and i can have with the don perite stuff at the end of the day that that will reinforce a narrative about how chaotic and unable to deliver the Liberals are, but by itself is probably not mm. going to be what changes government. Um, we'll, uh, Social Democratic will be focusing on the New South Wales election campaign starting not next week. Next week we've got our um, traditional uh, International Women's Day uh, podcast handover episode, but the week after that, all the way up until uh, Election Day on the 25th of March, we're going to be focusing uh, wholly and solely on the New South Wales uh, election campaign. And I think we'll also be speaking to, we'll do a bonus episode at some point during that uh, with Mark Morey, who's the uh, union's New South Wales uh, secretary and talking a bit about the campaign that they're doing uh, around essential workers. Let's end on a, uh, on a high note. Uh, Monday was a uh, day of celebration and a day of mourning for some. Uh, it chalked up 3,000 days for uh, the uh, the Labor government uh, under the premiership of Daniel Andrews. Uh, that means that he qualifies for a statue. For those outside of the state of Victoria, the backstory of this stupid story really is that when Jeff Kennett was Premier of Victoria in around about 1998, heading into 1999, he decided to uh, commission a series of statues to premiers of the state that had been a premier for more than 3,000 days. Those that qualified for it were Dunstan, Balti, 
and uh, Dunstan, Balti, Hamer, and Kane. So three Liberal premiers and one Labor premier. But this wasn't some sort of altruistic, lovely recognition of past leadership. He had done the math himself and realized that he wasn't that far away from 3,000 either, thus qualifying for a statue. All he had to do was beat or win the next state election that was coming up in uh, uh, in uh, 1999. At the time, the Labor Party was seen to be in a bit of turmoil. John Brumby was the leader. His leadership was uh, struggling in the polls. He then got rolled uh, and a guy called Steve Brax was uh, um, elected uh, the, the leader of the Labor Party and Kenneth, you know, it was like Steve who, and oh, this is a lay down Mazzeo. I'm going to, you know, lock this one in and I'm going to get my statue three thousand days. Come on, you know. And then he didn't win. <laughs> he didn't win and he never got his statue. And now Daniel Andrews is qualified for the statue three thousand days as leader. And this story is just in the heads of the Tories. They are obsessed with this. And I just want to get your thoughts on this one, Ben. Well, it, it, it speaks to the different sets of values, doesn't it? Like, you know, Jeff Kennett desperately wanted his statue. He was bitterly disappointed about it. You know, I think he was bringing up the the fact that Andrews would get a statue during the last election campaign as a reason to not vote for Labor, as, as though the only reason you would be in government is to get the baubles and the trinkets. Um, and, and yet, you know, Andrews has been asked about it and he's like, I... It's a day like any other. Um, you know, I'm not concerning myself with statues. That's really a matter for the next Premier to, to figure out. Um, I've got an agenda of things I want to get done, you know, and they don't include building a statue. I think the, I think the reality for, for, um, for the Tories is that they still believe they have an entitlement to rule. And, and part of that entitlement to rule is marking these kind of um, abstract anniversaries uh, with these baubles and trinkets and statues. Uh, when I think about uh, when I think about the kinds of things that labour movement people need to do to get statues, I think about people like Zelda Deprano, who Victorian Trades Hall is building a statue of. There's a person who chained themselves to the offices of the Commonwealth uh, in order to get women equal pay. You know, they didn't sit on the plump chairs of Treasury Place uh, with their with their staff and and refuse to answer questions. I mean, Kenneth is just the the real poster boy for that um, that set of values. And at the same time, Andrews is increasingly, you know, I'm sure he wouldn't like me calling him this, but the poster boy for our set of values, right? That it is what you do that matters, not the recognition that you've done it that's important. And, um, you know, I, I, I sincerely hope he does at least another 3,000 days uh, and he gets two statues, uh, you know, and they can high-five each other over the delivery of free kinder and better public schools and better hospitals and, you know, shorter commute times from the outer suburbs and more infrastructure locally so there are jobs in the regions. Like that's the sort of thing that we should be focused on. But, geez, and even the media class, oh, my God, is Dan Andrews going to have a statue? Will the statue wear um, North Face, a North Face jacket or will it be in a suit? Like, you know, if that's the level of your political commentary, you, you should not be allowed to call yourself chief political editor. You should be down in the gossip 
gossip pages. Like there's a place for that. It's the gossip columns. It's not the political pages of a major newspaper. So, look, I think it's it's hilarious in a way, but it does show that clear divide between what are, you know, the, the Tories' values, the Liberal Party values and, and Labor values. And it just to that point, it, and it just highlights this is why we win and yeah. this is why you keep losing, you know. You, you, you're, you're, you're got, your eyes are on the wrong ball. You are in another place. Uh, you are not focused on the things that matter to ordinary, I hate that word, ordinary, the, the things that matter to Victorians. You know, you're, yeah. just in another, you're on another planet. And the journalists, to your point there, like why you, you know the Premier, you know exactly how he handles questions. You've watched him for the last frigging 12 years. Why ask him those questions? It's just these are these are just ones he easily bats away. Like it's and it just sets him up to then get back to talking points. Like he always says, the, the only thing I want to build is more removing more level crossings, building more hospitals, building more schools, building more bloody underground tunnels to connect us all. You know. Well, imagine being it's odd. imagine being in in the federal seat of Aston, and the the main thing that you're hearing about the Liberal Party in Victoria talking about is whether or not Dan Andrews is going to have a statue. And you compare that to the fact that Dan Andrews is talking about those actual issues around level crossing removal, which in Aston is going to be a big deal, right? And hospitals, which in Aston is going to be a big deal. Schools, which in Aston is going to be a big deal. And and you'd be, just in terms of brand, you'd be going, what are they talking What are the Liberals talking about? Statues? You know, I mean, how many people in Aston have even been to Treasury Gardens? You know, like these are yeah. these are not issues that really resonate with people. So, I mean, I hope they keep talking about it. I, I hope that uh, uh, that the Victorian Liberal Party uh, maintain their obsession with Dan Andrews, and I hope the media uh, commentators who seem to enjoy hanging off those little tidbits, uh, insider tidbits that they get given. Keep putting up those, keep putting up those soft balls because he just whacks them out of the park. Like, good, long may it continue. Like I said, they keep doing it. He's going to get three thousand more days, and the, you know, there'll be a terracotta army of Dan Andrews's in Treasury Place. The way this is going, you know, they just they just can't get it together. It's remarkable how the media and uh, the Tory men are so obsessed with an erection. But there you go. Um, <laughs> You say things on this podcast we would never get away with on the week on. <laughs> I just keep searching for something that it can then become the subject heading for the actual episode. I don't know if uh, Rebecca's prepared to do that one. Um, before we go, uh, do you want to give uh, the, uh, the 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 shows coming up uh, another plug? The uh, ones at the Fringe in Adelaide. Yeah, that'd be great. So. Uh, Van, Batam and I are in Adelaide on the 1st, the 8th and the 15th of March. We are in the Yurt, uh, which is behind the Immigration Museum. Uh, lovely building. Uh, when, you, when you come along, because I'm sure you will, uh, you'll notice the bricks that have the names of families and the countries that they've come from uh, when they came to South Australia, which is a lovely uh, tribute to, to many of the uh, migrant families from across the generations and across the eras. So check that out. We're in the yurt. It is air-conditioned. Uh, hopefully it won't be as hot uh, as it was this week. Uh, and, yeah, come and check us out. We will post the episodes, of course, uh, as well, but it's a great atmosphere and Van signs copies of her books afterwards. So if you want to bring those along, you can, and we hang around and have a chat and have a drink, and it's a really good, fun atmosphere. If you've never been to a Fringe Festival, now's the time. 
Ben, is it ticketed or how do you get tickets or do you, can you just walk up? or? Yeah, so you can walk up on the day, uh, but you can get your tickets online. So if you go to the Adelaide Fringe Festival uh, page or you can just Google Adelaide Fringe Van Batam or Adelaide Fringe Week on Wednesday and it comes up as a first uh, link that you can click through and, and select the ticket that's right for you. Uh, we have uh, tiered pricing, of course, as well. So uh, if you uh, don't have a lot of money, uh, we want to make sure people can participate. It's uh, Week on Wednesday has never been about the money. It's never been about the money. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you want to get a ticket in advance, that helps us too just so we know how many chairs to put out. So always good. Wonderful. As a former resident of uh, Adelaide for a number of years, uh, the Adelaide Fringe is a really good uh, event to go to and the fact that you guys got a show on, um, then that's even more reason to get down there to support the Fringe and support Week on Wednesday. Um, so we want to wish you the best of luck uh, with those live shows um, and uh, and obviously with the podcast in general. Thanks for your time uh, today, Ben, and uh, we hope to have you on the show again. I think it's be our turn to have you next. Stephen, you'll have to come on the week on Wednesday. We will Maybe. find a time. We will find a time. Podcast table tennis. I'm all about it. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Thanks so much for having me on, mate. It's been great. Cheers. Hey there. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Social Democratic was brought to you by SwiftFox. Every moment on a campaign matters. You need the tools that you can trust, lists that are up to date, phone banks that can change minds, emails that drive donations, events that will energise the community online and offline and text blasts that distill your message perfectly. SwiftFox CRM is made for campaigners by campaigners. To find out more, go to swiftfoxcrm.com to win your next campaign.